0: Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the story of Kelly Stage. But first, your true crime headlines. A Colorado jury deliberated for three and a half hours before finding Patrick Frazee guilty of the murder of his fiancée, Kelsey Barreth, on Thanksgiving Day of 2018. Barreth was last seen on supermarket surveillance video from the day she disappeared, shopping with the one-year-old daughter that she shared with Frazee. It is believed that she was murdered in her home later that day by Frazee as their daughter sat in a playpen in another room. The prosecution's star witness was Frazee's longtime mistress, Crystal Lee Kenney. Kenny testified that Frazee had asked her on several occasions to help him murder Barrett and who admitted to driving from her home in Idaho to Bereth's condo in Colorado to help Frazee clean up the crime scene two days after the murder. Kenny stated that Frazee told her that he had beaten Bereth to death with a baseball bat and that she watched as Frazee burned her body on his Colorado ranch. A partial tooth was discovered on Frazee's property at the site where Kenny testified that the body had been burned but it did not contain enough DNA to determine who it belonged to. Kelsey Baruth's body has never been found. Patrick Frazee was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 156 years. Crystal Lee Kenney pleaded guilty to a charge of tampering with evidence and avoided more serious charges through her cooperation with prosecutors. She faces a maximum of three years in prison. A Pennsylvania man has confessed to killing his girlfriend in Nevada after driving her there for what he told her was a vacation, then impersonating her in text messages and on social media for nearly two months after the killing. 39-year-old John Matthew Chapman is in custody and facing charges of kidnapping, obstructing administration of law, and criminal use of a communication facility. is being held without bail in the Allegheny County Jail. Pennsylvania lacks jurisdiction to file a murder charge in the case. Authorities say that Chapman killed his girlfriend, 33-year-old Jamie Fedden, on September 25th after convincing the woman to take part in a bondage-themed photo shoot in the desert. Chapman tied Fedden's hands to a signpost with zip ties and put duct tape over her mouth and nose, causing her to suffocate. After she died, he removed her clothing, along with the zip ties and duct tape, and left her body in the desert. Chapman spent the next several weeks impersonating Fedin on social media and in text messages with the woman's family and friends, who grew suspicious after receiving wrong answers to questions that Fedin would have been able to correctly answer. They reported her missing, and Chapman confessed during questioning the following day. Authorities from Nevada plan to travel to Pennsylvania to meet with investigators regarding the case. It will be up to Nevada to decide whether or not to file homicide charges in the case. A mistrial has been declared in the murder trial of three people accused of killing a pizza delivery driver in 2017, and a computer glitch is apparently to blame. A judge in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania declared the mistrial during the second week of testimony against the three defendants, who are accused of luring Domino's pizza delivery man Richard Labar to the campus of East Stroudsburg University before shooting and killing him. The 58-year-old grandfather was shot in the face and robbed of $100 after being ambushed during a pizza delivery on December 11, 2017. A new trial will be scheduled for defendants Salvador Roberts, Carolina Carmona, and Israel Barrios. Officials at the Monroe County Courthouse said there were two other mistrials because of the computer glitch and that each of those cases will also have to be retried. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the story of Kelly Stage. But first, a quick break. Do you hear that sound? That is the sound of my mental break. You know, true crime is my passion, and I love researching and writing about murder, but even I need the occasional break. So when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. I'm obsessed with this game in the best way possible. You can download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, and it's a casual game anyone can play, but it's made for adults. You can spend as much or as little time as you like in the game, and it's easy. All the good guys are bugs, and the bad guys are slugs. Yes, you heard that right, and it is designed for adults. I'm on level 54. My favorite bug that I've collected, his name's Gene. He's a centipede. It's as great as it sounds, I promise. I promise. Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players. It's great for traveling. You can play it anywhere. I play it when I'm in my lift on my way to work. Collect tons of characters and use them strategically for each level. You can engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect all their cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. And Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. So download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R Best Fiends. As in My Best Fiend with Klaus Kinski, who was also a slug who needed to be defeated. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play now. Get started. Jean is waiting for you. If you're planning a wedding, first of all, congratulations. But if you're planning a wedding, chances are you're a little bit stressed out. Zola is here to help. Zola is a wedding company that will do anything for love, and it's reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make it the happiest moment in couples' lives together who wants to start their marriage off stressed out? Join over one million couples who've used Zola. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, the easiest wedding registry, affordable invite suites, and more. You can conveniently manage everything online and in one place. Saves so much time. Start with your free wedding website. It's so easy and takes just minutes to set up and customize they have hundreds of beautiful wedding website designs to choose from all with matching invitation suites and your zola registry is on your wedding website so guests can easily get wedding info and buy your gifts in one convenient place and they do invitations as well wedding paper shouldn't blow your budget they have thousands of designs in every style and color scheme, all matching your website. Enjoy free envelopes, free guest addressing, and free online RSVP. Start building your free wedding website on Zola now and get $50 toward your registry. Go to zola.com/mm and get started today. That's Z O L A com slash mm.
1: Congratulations. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Kelly Stage's murder. Kelly Stage was born and raised in Elmira, a picturesque city in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Growing up, she loved spending time at the beach with her family, including her older brother and sister, her mom, and her dad, a respected fire chief. During high school, Kelly excelled at cheerleading, softball, and academics, graduating as an honor student. After completing college in New York, she moved to Las Vegas, where she shifted gears from teaching to working as a cocktail waitress, work she reportedly found fun and fulfilling. The year 2000 was a big one for Kelly and her old stomping ground, Elmira landed its first minor league hockey team that year, the Jackals. Soon after, in Vegas, Kelly met and fell in love with one of its star players. 15 years later, she would be embedded in Elmira's history in the worst of ways, as a victim of murder. Andrea Spiroch, a longtime friend of Kelly, told reporters that it seemed like love at first sight when Kelly met Tom Clayton. Kelly noticed him while watching a game, then at a bar afterward, where she walked up to him and asked him if he was single. This wasn't unusual behavior for Kelly, who was known for her straightforward honesty. Even her obituary talks about it. Anyone who came in contact with Kelly always knew where they stood with her, it says. She was never one to mince words or hold back her thoughts. Clayton was single at the time. He was also conventionally handsome and charming, with a bit of a bad boy reputation. One of his teammates, Jeff Antonovich, told the Daily Beast that Clayton played like any other hard-nosed hockey guy, one who was scrappy, tough, and got into fights. He wasn't the biggest guy, but he played like he was, he said. He would do whatever it took to win. Clayton didn't have to work hard to win Kelly's affections or vice versa. He was also immediately drawn to the ebullient young woman. The romance between the pair took off quickly. Two years after meeting, they were married and Kelly became the quintessential hockey wife, bringing her sweet, outgoing spirit to jackals games where she cheered from the stands. In 2007 though, a leg injury brought Clayton's athletic career to a full stop. So he and Kelly decided to focus on building a family and moved to North Carolina. They had two kids, first daughter Charlie, then three years later, a son they named Cullen. Clayton purchased properties to rent out and started a taxi business for intoxicated folks who needed a ride home. Five years later, they moved back to New York, not far from Kelly's childhood home. Once they were settled in, Kelly waited tables and Clayton opened a branch of a restoration and emergency service franchise before opening a similar business of his own with a colleague. Once the couple made enough money, they purchased more properties to rent out and things were looking good, really good, for their family, at least on the surface. A Toronto Sun article described Kelly and Clayton as a small-town golden couple who had cash, a beautiful home in the country, two lovely children, and that intoxicating elixir of local celebrity. But cracks were accumulating in that seemingly perfect facade. Friends of Clayton recall him describing Kelly as lazy and ungrateful. He even told Kelly's close friend Andrea at a birthday party for Kelly about their falling-apart marriage. He said he wasn't satisfied sexually and was tired of Kelly complaining that she wasn't happy. Clayton wanted to have sex with other women whenever he wished, which didn't bode well for their monogamous relationship. Could all of this have led to the final and most horrific night of Kelly's life? Clayton would be the first and lead suspect when her body was found— How could it be him, he alleged, when he wasn't even home when it happened? That evening, September 28, 2015, started out seemingly normal. Clayton left for his weekly poker game at the home of the nearby couple, Lucky and Greg Miller. Kelly remained home with her kids, fed them dinner, got them ready for bed. Then, within hours, the peaceful night gave way to horror. Horror. Just after midnight, a 911 operator received a phone call from Clayton. In a panicked voice, he said, Help me. My wife's dead. Police arrived to the home to find a gruesome scene. 35-year-old Kelly had been bludgeoned to death. Her bloody, lifeless body laid on the kitchen floor. In portions of a police tape released by ABC News, Deputy Dean Swan, who was first to arrive to the scene, said, I've got a female, mid-30s. Her face is completely beat in. Kids are home. Husband's claiming he was out playing poker. Came home and daughter said, Daddy, there was a robbery. Swan immediately wondered if this was a case of domestic violence. There were no signs of forced entry. Nothing appeared to have been stolen. Photos had been knocked off the walls in the hallway one of numerous signs Kelly fought to the end to survive. Clayton seemed suspiciously eager to share his whereabouts, making sure police knew he had an alibi before he was even asked. But his claim checked out. He had been at a poker game, according to his GPS, and the couple who hosted the poker game could vouch for his story. He also didn't appear to have any blood on his body, no signs of defense wounds. It was raining when Kelly's sister Kim drove to the home after receiving a phone call. Kelly's dead, she was told. Kelly was murdered. Rain pounded on her car windows as she rushed to the scene as though crying along with her. When Kim spotted an ambulance, shock and maybe hopeful denial led her to believe Kelly was still alive. Surely they were working on her, saving her life inside the emergency vehicle. Upon realizing this wasn't the case, that Kelly wasn't only deceased, but had been brutally beaten to death, she screamed, sobbed, and vomited. Investigators did have a witness. While that was undoubtedly helpful, it was also heartbreaking. The couple's seven-year-old daughter, Charlie, saw the attack. She told Sheriff Jim Allard that, quote, a masked man was killing mommy. When he asked her how she knew the person was a he, Charlie responded because his eyes looked just like daddy's. The official questioning took place in an interrogation room designed for kids, complete with a table full of toys. Like adults, kids have the right to refuse to be interviewed and authorities have to be careful not to pressure them into responding. And Charlie seemed very willing to share what she saw. She wanted to help her mommy. Investigators asked her questions to make sure she knew the difference between the truth and lies, and she did, then recorded the little girl's account, asking her plentiful questions about the night of the murder. The man who attacked her mother wore jeans, a black, long sleeve shirt, and a mask, Charlie said, adding, he looked like my dad he had on a mask like what daddy wears when he's hunting. When asked about his height, she offered, tall, like the size of my dad. Virtually everything related to her dad, but she said it couldn't have been daddy because he would have taken care of them. The last words Charlie said she heard from her mom were run, Charlie, run. Charlie said she hugged her mom's leg, then headed to her brother's room to protect him. Before the interview ended, she had a question for the investigators, too. Where is my mommy at? As the investigation continued, family members pointed the team to another man, Michael Beard. Beard had worked for Clayton, had recently been fired, and was described by some as Clayton's longtime friend. Beard's girlfriend told police that Clayton had offered him $10,000 to burn the Clayton family's house down. When police questioned Beard about this, he confessed. According to transcripts from the confession, he said this, He, meaning Clayton, wanted me to go to the house, kill Kelly, then light the house on fire. He said the kids would be at his sister's house. There was also gas in the garage. He wanted the cars to burn also, so he could collect insurance money. When officers asked Beard why he had agreed to commit these heinous acts, he said he just really needed the money. Having been fired, he was desperate to make ends meet. After killing Kelly, he said, he was too scared to set the house on fire. Beard guided police to the weapon used to end Kelly's life, too. A sledgehammer he said he'd tossed out of his car window while driving away from the home. In a nearby swamp, the team found Beard's clothing from that night. It was covered in Kelly's blood. At first, many of Kelly's loved ones were shocked to hear that Clayton may have been involved in some way. The couple had seemed happy, they thought. And even with Clayton's history of fights on the ice and the comments a few people had heard about marital dissatisfaction, the bad boy athlete turned family man hadn't raised any major red flags, especially not anything that led anyone to believe he wanted his wife dead or would take steps to make that happen. And so far, investigators only had Beard's words stating that he'd been hired by Clayton as a hitman. No physical proof or corroborating stories. Phone records suggested another story. Lucky Miller, one of the hosts of the poker game Clayton had played the night of the murder, recalled that Clayton had asked to use her cell phone during the game. Bizarrely, when she checked her call history, no outgoing calls appeared at the time she recalled it happening. She and her stepdaughter logged into the phone's account online and saw that, indeed, a call had gone out to Michael Beard's phone. Clayton must have deleted it from her history. Clayton also stopped by the Millers' home and made a call from their landline the afternoon before the murder, again calling Beard. Both Clayton and Beard were arrested for the murder of Kelly Stage. At the trials, more darkness was revealed. According to court records from Clayton's trial, he had been breaking his agreements with Kelly pretty heavily. He'd been sexually involved with at least three other women, including a close friend of Kelly's, who admitted to participating in a threesome with Clayton. On the stand, she said Clayton often complained about Kelly, calling her a bitch and saying he wouldn't consider a divorce because she would quote, take everything. Clayton had also taken out a life insurance policy in Kelly's name and considered increasing it to $1 million just a year before her murder. He pleaded not guilty to one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. In his defense, Clayton's attorney argued that first responders assumed this was a domestic violence case upon arrival, then gathered evidence to support that, rather than let evidence lead them to the right perpetrator. He said this wasn't a question of whether or not Clayton had affairs, but of whether or not he killed Kelly, and that there was no physical evidence of an agreement with Beard to have her killed. He pointed to Beard as the killer and instigator, saying the two men were never personally connected, never friends, and that Beard knew Clayton had money. If that was the case, why would Beard kill Kelly and take literally nothing from the home? Kelly's sister Kim said she believed Clayton, a powerful white man, used the far less privileged Beard, a jobless black man to get what he wanted. Clayton was a powerful, convincing man and Beard would have done anything to help his own family. At his trial, which happened first, Beard recanted his guilty plea, claiming that Clayton paid him to burn down his home to get insurance money. He denied killing Kelly, stating he had backed out of the plan when he saw that a robbery had taken place. Clayton had told him the house would be empty, but when Beard found Kelly's dead body, he fled the scene in shock. To Kelly's family, he said, I'm sorry for your loss. I know you mourn, but I, Michael Beard, did not kill Kelly Clayton. May God rest her soul. DNA evidence linked Beard with Kelly's murder and at the trial's end, he was convicted of all charges and sentenced to life in prison without parole. At Clayton's trial, two months after Beard was convicted, the prosecution depicted Beard as a pansy and Clayton as the mastermind. Clayton's defense argued that while he wasn't the best husband, he was completely uninvolved with the murder. The testimony of former police officer Cy Ray, who runs a firm that combines data to trace cell phone locations, helped the prosecution side, showing that Clayton's claim that he hadn't been in much contact with Beard was false. Using cell phone data, he created a very convincing map, that placed Beard and Clayton near each other on multiple occasions leading up to Kelly's murder. After a nearly seven week trial, a jury found Clayton guilty of first and second degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Clayton's defense team filed to appeal the verdict more than once since his initial sentencing. In 2016, a third suspect was arrested A man named Mark Blandford was taken into custody and charged with second-degree murder, first-degree burglary, and fourth-degree conspiracy. Prosecutors said he plotted with Beard to murder Kelly. Clayton's attorney said this of the third man's involvement. This new defendant highlights the lack of connection between Thomas Clayton and the death of his wife. The prosecution is based on demonstrably false statements, especially by Beard. Now we learn that Beard acted in concert with a second defendant. It's time for the prosecution of Thomas Clayton to end. That appeal was denied. As was Clayton's latest attempt in 2019, New York's highest court made it impossible for him to ever get out of prison. He'll spend his remaining days there with no chances for parole. Kelly's loved ones feel this is the least that can be done given that her life was cut so tragically short. Nearly everyone who talks about Kelly's memory mentions her big heart and outgoing spirit. She was a devoted mother who looked out for her kids until her final moments, when she told her daughter Charlie to run. Her spirit lives on in Charlie and Colin, who went to live with Kelly's sister Kim after the murder. Kelly was their world, reads her obituary, and Kelly's children were her world. In a follow-up interview with ABC, Kim and Kelly's mother, Elizabeth, are shown walking through one of Kelly's favorite parks. Beside a bench stands a plaque with her name that reads, Forever loved and missed, as bright as the sun. This has been Murder Minute. For a true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya.